we got this idea that we're going to send half the people and put them in debt and go to college. They're going to get psych degrees, sociology, environmental, and we're going to neglect the tradesman, the plumber, the assembler, the construction engineer. We can't even build enough ships to deter the Chinese. We don't have the wherewithal. Our brightest people are going into high finance, investment, Wall Street, when they should be going in, I think, to you know, corporate uh, construction, assembly, new products, etc. We need more Henry Fords and people like that, Thomas Edison, and less of these gurus that don't make any. All right, folks, you've done all the hard work. It's time to sit back and relax here on a Friday. Let the Sean Spicer Show drive you right into the weekend. And if you're watching this Friday night, well, God bless you. If you're waiting to the weekend, no problem. Guess what? No one really cares about the Super Bowl, do they? I'm just kidding. I know some people do. Anyway, Victor Davis Hanson is here with us next week, by the way. Linda McMahon, the chair of the America First Prior uh, Policy Institute, will join us as well, talking to us a lot about a second Trump administration. But we're going to break it down with Victor about the Trump-Biden debate, border issues, Biden forgetting what day it is, the U.S. deficit and all the threats that we face. Victor, as you know, uh, is the author of several books, including uh, the Dying Citizen, The Case for Trump. And he's got a brand new book coming out in May, The End of Everything, How Wars Descend into Annihilation. He's out at the Hoover Institute. Let's break it down with Victor Davis Hanson. Victor, always good to see you. Uh, I got to tell you, I know your new book doesn't come out until May. Uh, and I referenced it in the intro. The End of Everything, How Wars Descend into Annihilation. And I, I want, I'm going to have you back on in May to talk about, or April, I don't know, whenever you're available. I'll, I'll love to have you on, in fact, as many times as you want. But the thing that was interesting is the, the title of it got me thinking. And so I don't, I'm not looking to get into the book. But one of the things that I started to think about based off your title was where we are as a country. And, and, and I'll just start with, with this border bill this week. And I kept thinking to myself, all great countries you know, have strong borders, strong laws. And as soon as they start to decay, it seems like that would be the beginning of the end. And I, I couldn't help but think to myself where we are in this country, that we are now at a place where one party uh, supports an open and porous border where anybody can come in and another party is having to fight for it. It just says to me that we're, we're at a precipice as a great nation. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And the book makes that point in four historical studies of societies that destroyed. But what is an, an auxiliary or an, uh, a subordinate theme of that is that when people open the border or they feel that there's enemies over the horizon, they have a smug complacence. They think that we're so strong or we're the Byzantines. We've been here for a thousand years or we're Carthage. We've been here over 700 years, we can't be assailed. We can't fall. This will this will pass. It's not an existential threat. These people don't know what they're up against. It's a, it's kind of a very haunting and dangerous idea of either complacency or hubris. And I think that's one of our problems too. We just feel the United States can always take in millions of people. We don't really care. They can go anywhere. We have the money to accommodate them. There's no such thing as you know disunity. We'll incorporate them. And that would be a good take on it. A cynical take was a lot of people don't want the United States to resemble what it has in the past. And they feel they're importing a new constituency, especially given what we saw in 2020 when 70, 30 
of 30% in most swing states, uh, non-election day balloting went up to 60, 65% under the guise of COVID when the rejection rate of fraudulent ballots died by a magnitude. So I think a lot of people on the left feel that with a mail-in ballot system, people will not be authenticated in the 2024 election. I think it's not just long-term constituencies are thinking about. Hey folks, are you looking to secure your financial future? I know during the Biden economy, that's something that all of us are trying to do more. I've added precious metals to my investment strategy. And the people that I trust to do that are the folks at Bishop Gold Group. Now, if you go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean, you can begin your journey as well with a special promotion. Or you can give them a call at 844-984-1616. These are the people that I picked up the phone. I called them. I walked through my particular situation. And we came up with a strategy. Now, maybe you have an IRA that you want to roll over. Maybe you just want to diversify your investments. But people at Bishop Gold Group are the people that I trust. Give them a call or go to the site bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean. You get on the phone, you talk about your particular situation, and they'll help you come up with a strategy. Maybe you keep some of the gold with you, maybe they do it for you, but you can work with them one-on-one to come up with a strategy that's good for you. So go to bishopgoldgroup.com slash Sean to begin your journey to financial freedom through precious metals. Well, Stephen Miller was on the show earlier this week, and he was talking about the fact that in, in this border bill, which I keep trying to catch myself because it's not a border bill, but in this, mm. in this immigration bill, um, people who claim asylum will now only be subject to this one, you know, leftist asylum claim officer who will likely just grant them it. And then they are on an immediate path to citizenship, i.e. the ability to vote. There will be no adjudication of that through the court system anymore if that bill were to pass. And getting back to your point, I don't, I think that might have been the case. The case that I've been making for a while now is that because of the influx of drugs and particularly fentanyl and, and of threats, i.e. terrorists that are coming in, that this isn't just about us saying, oh, we can absorb them in some humanitarian uh, cause that I'm sure some people subscribe to, but I believe the vast majority of the folks on the left look at these folks as new voters, they look at this as an opportunity to come in and to grow a constituency. And I've, I've argued this back and forth with folks and said, if you don't agree with that, then why are you, for example, allowing people not to enter through a port of entry? I mean, there's so hmm. many things. Why are you fighting people who want to put, you know, razor wire up and then suing them? There's just no case for doing it legally anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you, what you just said is often damned as the great replacement theory, but in fact, they, they cherish that idea and they have different words for it. Books have appeared called The New Democratic Majority or, or Demography is Destiny, written by triumphalist left-wing officers. But there's a corollary as well. Why do they think they have to do this? They think they have to do this because this hard-left neo-socialist agenda of theirs that we've seen the last three years doesn't win on any issue 50% a majority of supporters. So they feel that the demographic is not in their favor. The only paradox or irony that I can see to it is that by trying to import a new constituency, they are, they are so endangering and so insensitive to their core constituencies of Latino and black voters that they may end up canceling this whole effort by losing voters uh, who are suffering from this influx of uh, immigrants because it's pretty patently clear to inner city 
residents that they care more about illegal aliens coming into the country than they do providing reliable services to their core their core supporters. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because the the modern day Democratic Party is just a coalition of disparate groups that that feel uh, you know harmed, right? Yes. Uh, that that it's not. If you think about it, right now the the Republican Party is is more, and the conservative movement is about opportunity and welcoming in. You talk about blacks and Latinos; uh, those groups have actually started to move marginally towards the right. They they're just willing to pick up whatever little scrap of a group will do it. And I think this is to them a huge new, you know, uh, trough of of voters that will be with them for a lifetime. Yeah. You know, it also was a revelation when you saw the vote on this preposterous bill, coupled with the defections that led to the uh, relief of Mallorcas from an impeachment uh, resolution. You really do see that the Republican Party has a large number of people who have other issues involved other than worrying about border security. And I think, I don't know what the reason is. Maybe they feel that the corporate Wall Street Chamber of Commerce, part of the party needs inexpensive labor. I don't know why, because the labor participation rate is only about 61%. And if we could get rid of incentives not to work, we wouldn't need additional workers. But it really showed you that the Democrats are completely regimented, united. They broke no dissension. And the Republicans, even with the majority, cannot pass uh, a impeachment of Mayorkas. And nor were they, they were almost not able to stop this immigration bill until the public outcry and the media outcry on the right uh, shamed some of the supporters. But it, it, it really shows you that you can see why Donald Trump came out of nowhere with the MAGA agenda as a, as a anecdote to what the Republican Party had been under the Romneys and McCain's and that, that establishment. So... When the, when the bill looked like it was gonna get tanked, right? President Biden came out and this is what he said. All indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason, Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't, even though it helps the, the, the country, he's not for it. Right, so he's making the case that this is Trump. This is on Trump. The border's not secure between Trump which defies the fact that, A, it's been three years of a Biden administration, and also, as I said earlier, they're the guys who sued Texas to open up the border. <laughs> do, you, do you think that people, I mean, and I'm being serious now, because why would you say something like that if you're the White House and you don't think people will at least tangentially buy into it? I think it's desperate. I think right now they have no winning issue other than maybe abortion and Donald Trump is satanic and his the MAGA, ultra-MAGA, semi-fascist people are January 6th insurrectionists, and they want to piggyback anything they can onto Donald Trump. But it's, I think everybody understands that they could close the border in the way Trump did. Uh, he handed them the border, and he did it without any new legislation, without any new sizable entitlement. He just enforced the law. And he went down to Mexico, and he basically told Obrador, we're going to renegotiate NAFTA, or maybe we'll tax remittances, whatever we have to do, unless you do your part. And he did. And he had a lot more respect for Trump than he does does Biden. And so they know that that is absurd. And tomorrow, they don't they could close a the border. They don't need the money. They don't need new legislation. 
but they don't want to do it. And they thought of every imaginable gimmick, tying it to Israel aid, tying it to Ukraine aid, uh, shaming people, calling people xenophobes and racists, even so boldly as to get on the last two months, people got right on television and in the, co- in the halls of Congress and said, we need cheap labor. Who's going to pick do our dirty work? I couldn't believe that. I mean, it was the most condescending idea that you, you can imagine coming from the left. But they are desperate, and I think they realize the, project, the progressive project has run out of ideas if it ever had any, and it's inert. And they got to find some quick gimmick to save them in the 2024 election. And they're trying everything from ballot removal to lawfare with these indictments. Anything other than here's our agenda, here is the Republican agenda, let the best, best agenda win under a free and transparent election. That's not what they want. You know, it's funny you bring that up because you look at the, the cities, right? So we now talk about that every state is a border state. People are seeing it in ways that they haven't before. You talk to folks in New Hampshire, the fentanyl crisis is through the roof. I mean, that's, it's literally going from our southern border up through New England. And then you look at these cities havens of left-wing blue cities, and they're being overrun by crime. And I have to wonder, when does this, when does it sink in? When do people say, all right, I've had enough. You know, you think about someone like a Rudy Giuliani who came up and said, I'll tell you what, I get New York's not a Democrat, I mean, a Republican place, but I have a a way to get us back on track. Mm -hmm. Is there hope, do you think, looking back historically for a resurrection of some of these cities where somebody comes in and says, if you've had enough, I'll get this place straightened out. Yeah, because, you know, this this manifestation of decay is relatively recent. I can remember as a Bay Area, where I work in the Bay Area, I can tell you that as late as 2010, it was a enviable place. It was almost too expensive to live. So many people wanted to get in. Now they've left in droves. But what I'm getting at is what was destroyed quickly could be rebuilt fairly quickly by just taking all of the new legislation that ruined things and just reversing it and getting dealing with a homeless problem, bringing back three strikes and you're out in California, getting uh, some money, uh, lowering taxes on businesses, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it's, I think what the, the biggest challenge we have now are these cities are sinking down to, a, to about a half of their potential populations, and that half is sort of hardcore leftist, and they feel that there's always going to be rich people who are going to subsidize their expenditures, and it won't change until that money is gone, and then they look at themselves and say, who is going to pay for this? And that's what's happening in California as a state. We're losing a quarter million per year, and only 1% was paying half the income tax, and they're desperate. Now they're trying to raise it to 16% when 13 drove out. And you get the impression that's in a doom loop, and then they know it's in a doom loop, and yet they not quite at the point of exasperation where they say, we did this to ourselves, we failed, we ruined this beautiful state we inherited, we've got to change. I don't think we're quite there, but we're getting close. Hey guys, uh, as a former White House press secretary and a graduate of the U.S. Naval War College, I spent a lot of time thinking through contingency planning, and there's nothing better that you can do for yourself and your family and your loved ones than getting the Patriot Power Generator 2000X. When something goes wrong, a natural disaster, some other thing that attacks our power grid, you will be prepared. The Patriot Generator 2000X is the perfect 
thing for your house, your family. You can plug in everything, a refrigerator. So if you have medical supplies or food, you will be prepared. All of those other tablets and computers, things that are helpful for you and your family, the Patriot Power Generator 2000X takes care of it. The best part about it is it's portable. You can bring it in your house. You can take it with you on a trip, run it out of your car at a campsite. It doesn't matter. Put it literally in your house and on the counter and power the fridge. You can do it. Plus, it operates off a solar panel which comes free with your order. You will be prepared. No running to the gas station, no worrying about anything else. The Patriot Power Generator 2000X is your hedge against the inevitable. Go to fourpatriots.com slash Spicer to get yours now. So I think of all the people that I know during COVID and post-COVID that left California and said, I'm going to Texas, I'm going to Montana, to South Dakota. And I feel like there's either the people who are left or either the people who are trapped there financially or the people who are okay with it. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people like myself, who is the sixth generation in California, I have two children, I have grandchildren here. My children don't have the wherewithal to move, just pull out and leave their jobs and go anywhere. And I don't really, at 70, want to go halfway across the country and not see my grand. I have a farm that's been in my family for 150 years, and I feel part of me says, who? Who says it's their California? Who said that Gavin Newsom gets to have it? Who said that all of these uh, 27% of our state population was not born in California? Uh, who's residing here? Who says it's their country? I, not, I think that's a, a better attitude a lot of uh, we conservatives had, especially with the universities. Who says that the people on campus at this particular day or year in our history own Harvard or own Yale? How about the alumni? How about the taxpayer? who subsidize it with generous tax breaks. And so I, I think we really have to say to us, yeah, we can create alternate new institutions to make up for what they have grabbed and expropriated, but why not just say it's not yours to steal? And California belongs to the people who created it and handed it to us as a wonderful place, and we're going to try to get it back. And you people are interlopers and thieves, and they are. They just came in here and redefined California and said it's ours and you're racist or you're xenophobes and we're going to take it over and we're going to change it. And I don't think they should get away with it. And have you in history, are there examples where this has happened, where you see this decline and decay? Yes. It had a rebound? Yes. Before the collapse of the Roman Empire, it happened in the third century AD. People saw what was happening and there was a renewed effort to redo, uh, refund the currency and make it more stable to, under Diocletian, to redo uh, administrative and to control the borders. But the most important was the Byzantine Empire. In the sixth century, it was through. It was the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire had fallen. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere came Justinian. And he said, we're going to have a new legal code. We're going to get rid of this huge workless bureaucracy. We're going to build Santa Sophia, the greatest cathedral for a thousand years in Christendom. We're going to recodify the law. And he, he created a renaissance that lasted for a thousand years. So it can be done, but it requires leadership, imaginative leadership. And uh, it, it requires people to fight. And, and you can't just, I think we're all guilty of it, a monastery of the mind. We just say, you know what? I don't want to watch the Oscars anymore. I don't want to watch the NBA playoffs. I do not want to watch the Emmys. I've given up on the Hollywood, uh, any of these, you know, White House course, all this ridiculousness. I don't want it anymore. I don't like popular 
music. I'm just going to go off on my one acre. And, and, and I think that's understandable, but that kind of isolationism, it feeds into the left's uh, control of our institution. Uh, we've got to take the institutions back, the universities, K through 12, the corporate boardroom, the foundations, popular entertainment, sports. They don't own it. And I think that they, they get an enormous amount of influence without majority support from the control of these media and other uh, institutions. So in the last six months, 12 months, I have felt like there are some reasons for hope, whether it's what happened at Harvard, at least firing Claudine Gay, uh, some of the consumer protests that have occurred against places like Target and whatever, where people stood up. Are we fighting enough? Are we fighting the right way? I think we're beginning to. I really do. I'm very confident. I think that all of the barrage of smears and slanders of the of the left doesn't mean anything. When Claudine Gay played the race card, nobody listened to it. She was fired, gone, done. She was a plagiarist, clear. And when Eric Adams plays the race card, nobody listens. He had a he had a workable city. He helped ruin it. It's his fault. It has nothing to do with his race. And people are demanding, I think, that accountability. And the old idea that you'd rather be called uh, I don't know, a child molester rather than a racist or a homophobe or xenophobe or sex. I don't think it affects people the way it does. They're so tired of it. It's infl- the inflation. It's sort of like Gresham's wall that it's just driven out normal discourse. It's so empty. So I, I think there's a lot of people who I'm kind of confident. I think the only problem that we're going to see in the 2024 election is to what degree this these indictments, this lawfare is going to find liberal judges, liberal prosecutors, and liberal juries and try to incarcerate for the first time in history the Republican candidate. And I don't know, I hope we can stop that. And the other thing is, uh, I think we have to insist on transparent elections and everybody according to their station has to get involved in going to the polls and, yeah. and getting invested in making sure that we have a fair and honest election. You know, I've told people, you can't just anecdotally say something. No. If you no, see you something, document it, take photos of it, write you it do. down so that people can actually go out and investigate it. If someone's breaking the law, it needs to be documented. Anecdotal evidence doesn't work. But, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I was watching and just take a listen to this. President Biden reacted to President Trump asking for him to debate. Now, I get that this is kind of cute. He's saying, oh, I, I hope I bet you he does. But I think that that's the right tactic for Trump. Just keep goading him. To your point, you've got the lawsuits on one hand, but to to basically call out Biden that he's not, doesn't have the stamina, the mental liquidity, et cetera, to debate his opponent. Yeah, I, and I, I think that the left understands that. I think when they look at the Trump campaign and they compare it to 2016 or 2020 or Trump's own discipline or the knowledge that Trump has gained from four years of governance, they see a far more disciplined, far more effective campaign. And when you look at what Heritage and other think tanks are doing to prepare for a possible uh, Trump win and the types of uh, appointees and types of agendas that would be available to Trump, I think they're really scared of it because I feel that they think he could possibly win the Senate, win the House, and he could be a revolutionary figure like Reagan. And he could. And I think he's, he himself is a lot more disciplined. And uh, I, I think that scares. Anytime he says something, it's a little wild. They get very happy. But when he, when he go, when he kind of targets them and go and 
goats them into doing stuff or when he's disciplined, they don't like that. When he gave that speech after the Iowa primary, it was sober. It was just, they were furious. They wouldn't oh. even want to run it. And that's the kind of things that Trump, I think, is quite capable of doing if he can, if he can just continue that and not get distracted by all of this lawfare that they're trying. They're trying to destroy him psychologically, financially, physically, electorally, every manner in the way. And it's, it's, I don't envy him, but if he can keep us cool and keep this disciplined team together, I think he can win and he can win the Congress with him. You know, that was so succinctly put. He really, they really are. It's like, we're going to go after you from every single angle. We're going to attack they your are. finances, your family, you criminally... And I, I, I mean, they get it, right? Um, I, I think that's exactly the deal is we will figure out how to take you down. And it's funny you mentioned the Iowa caucus speech because I said this the day afterwards, Sean Hannity said it. If he could be that Trump all the time, it would be, this would be a blowout. It would. And I think he's starting to see that. I think he did less well, uh, after New Hampshire, it wasn't as disastrous as everybody said he was. But if he just followed the Iowa paradigm or he made fun of himself sometimes, he's got a great, you know him better than anybody, he has a great sense of humor. He can be self-critical. And he's at an age now where he's more re- introspective. And, and I, I think he could be a, he, he could win. And I think everybody I talk to in the left, and I work in the Bay Area, so that's almost everybody. So everyone. They are terrified. They yeah. are absolutely terrified of him right now. And the, the odd thing is they keep saying he's a dictator and he's going to be uh, ha- insist on retributions. And this is from people who weaponize the FBI, the CIA, the DI, DOJ. And the one thing that Trump didn't do is he didn't get vindictive and he didn't turn government into a personal police force to, to ha- harass and hound his enemies. He's not that. He didn't do it. And yet they project themselves... I think part of the problem we're dealing with is they know if they, if they had suffered from themselves what they did to Trump, and if they were Trump now on the cusp of, you know, being seriously uh, able to win the president, they know what they would do. And, and they project what they would do <laughs> under Trump. That's yeah. it. No, that's, that's it. it. They're like, here's, if I had four years of knowledge and could do all this, here's what <laughs> yes. I would do. Exactly. All right, folks, if you've been watching the show for a while, you've heard me talk about my friend, Leo Grillo. He rescued a Doberman years ago, and he named the dog Delta. Delta stands for Dedication and Everlasting Love to Animals. He took it a step further. He founded Delta Rescue, and if you go to deltarescue.org, you can see some of the amazing work that they do. Just check out those videos. Look at some of the things that they do and the research. It's amazing. It's a no-kill sanctuary. You notice I didn't say shelter. It's a sanctuary dogs, cats, horses, they all roam free. They get the nutrition and the care they need for life. That has been Leo's mission, but it doesn't stop there. Leo wants to make this an enduring mission. All of Delta Rescue runs on our contributions, five, 10, 100, $1,000, whatever you can do. But Leo really wants to make sure that this outlasts even him. So if you go to deltarescue.org, you can check out not just the videos, but go to the estate planning kit and think about whether or not helping animals and ensuring that Delta Rescue lives on is part of your mission as well. Go to deltarescue.org, make a contribution, but then download that estate planning kit 
DeltaRescue.org. Check it out now. Last weekend, President Biden was out and he described a conversation he had with a bunch of world leaders. Let, let me play it for you. Right, right after I was elected, I went to a, what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was in, I was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me and said, uh, said, you know, what, why, how, how long are you back for? So here, that's the president of the United States. And this goes to, I think, part of the, what we're talking about, which is he's describing a conversation he had. Well, first he says Germany, but it's the French president who died in 1996. And I keep thinking to myself, all of the dishonest institutions that we have, when President Trump, let's face it, he screwed up Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi with talking about January 6th, everybody went bonkers, bonkers, right? Yeah. And it was, oh, you know, is he losing it? Da, da, da. Biden does this every day. And in that instance, literally has a, tells people he's having a conversation with, and Macron, by the way, didn't, the current French, uh, you know, president didn't just happen. I mean, so it's not like you're like, oh, forgot who that is, right? Because he's new or something like that. Macron's been there for a while. But here you have, him confusing a president that hasn't been in office since 1996 and not a peep from the media because there's, I think part of this is they're scared to expose just what's really happening with him. And that's yeah. probably why he won't, why he wouldn't even do the Super Bowl ad. Yeah, I, I was kind of confused. I, yeah, I was confused by the punditry that said, oh, it's inexplicable that Joe Biden would give up this historic, iconic opportunity to speak to the world. And I yeah. thought, no, it's not. Right. <laughs> if I was about Biden's handler, I wouldn't let him get close to the Super Bowl. Even a softball question, he could screw up. He is failing at a geometric, not an arithmetic rate. Each month, I if you look at clips to where he was on Inauguration Day compared to today, it's not the same. It's not even then the same Joe Biden much less two or three or four years before he was president. So I think they understand what's going on and they're terrified of it. And they don't know what to do. And I think they're inching toward some type of, you know, convention escape hatch if it gets bad, because I think the stress of the campaign to, to the degree he even wages a campaign may exacerbate what's going on. And I, I think they have backup plans as we speak, but uh, they don't want to. They can't, they can't disclose them. But I've talked to a lot of Democrats, especially fundraisers and bundlers, and they tell me they're talking all the time. The donor class is, we do not want him to be our nominee because we're going to lose a lot of power and, uh, and our, our agendas are going to be inert if he's, if he's the uh, nominee because he will lose. And I think he will lose if he's the nominee. Are they more worried? And I don't mean to be, uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to be glib or disrespectful. Are they more worried that he'll lose or that he'll die in office and Kamala will become the nominee? Well, I think it's both. I, I, I think they have a problem and why have, I mean, they're ruthless people and they would have acted by now if Kamala Harris was not vice president, they would have found a way to bring someone in. But the problem they get, to be quite blunt and cynical, the only person that they can bring in as an alternative to Biden would be Michelle Obama because she's another black woman. And you cannot uh, 
tell everybody in 2020 that you must have a black woman as vice president for diversity, equity, inclusion purposes, and then throw her under the right. bus and bring in a Gavin Newsom. It's just not viable. No, and that's that's Gavin's problem, right? That yes, it is. He's, he's it a is. straight white dude. He's got to come out as gay or something because I feel like mm. right now he's too, he doesn't fit where the progressive left is. It's, it's the, it's the uh, paradox of a lot of uh, wealthy, white, bicoastal, elite, liberal males that they created, and they did create it, the diversity, equity, inclusion paradigm. And they thought that they would always be so clever or so powerful or so rich or, that it wouldn't apply to them. But at the highest levels, it does apply to them. And he's almost, by his own ideology, eliminated himself from contention, at least until this DEI tyranny, uh, at least as long as it lasts. So that, I, that's their problem right now. It's how do we ease Joe out and what do we do with Kamala? Because there's two givens. We do not want him to be present and we especially do not want her to be present. And you that, know, it, that's, pretty, that's pretty much what it is. I, I always, I mean, a couple of things. Number one, I've never seen anybody do a better job as cheerleader than Gavin Newsom. He is doing everything to try to- He is. He's the best surrogate they have, God bless, but I agree with you. The second thing is I've always, and this is serious, Joe Biden guaranteed job security by naming Kamala Harris because nobody wants her. They literally are keeping, like Weekend at Bernie's keeping him going rather than have her. So let me just address my angle on the Michelle Obama Mm -hmm. and tell you, to ask you your opinion on this. Yes. I've always believed that there's a bit of a, a bitterness, a bit of a rivalry between the Obamas and the Bidens. And Biden mm-hmm. is bitter that he was overlooked in 16 and, and Obama tapped Hillary and said, Joe, you're gonna have to, you know, this isn't your turn and we're gonna bring Hillary up. And then Joe showed them all. He showed them, he, I won and see, I'm the guy that can do this and I don't need you and I'm smarter and better than you. And there's a bit of ego. Uh, that he has. And the idea of him, who did appoint the first black woman of color as vice, his vice president, to then be sidestepped and have the Obamas come in and save him is just something that the team, the Biden team cannot allow to happen. They do not want to be saved by team Obama. No, they don't. And, you know, we have those famous quotes that Obama has remarked about Biden, you know, don't underestimate Joe's ability to F it up. But I think most people realize that Obama got his dream when he said at one point, my dream of a third term would be to stay home and not have all of the drudgery of work and just dial in my agenda from my basement, which I think he's doing. The problem the Democrats have is the same thing uh, they had when they wanted to impeach Richard Nixon. You can remember they, they wanted to impeach him from early on, but they they saw Agnew there and they said, you know what, the, the country won't stand for Agnew. And in a cynical way, Nixon may or may not have understood that. But they really trumped up charge. I mean, Agnew was probably had a lot of legal exposure, but given what the, at the, in those days, what most governors did as governor of Maryland, it was not unusual. And they really trumped that up and got rid of him. And that, and that way, it was palatable to put in Jerry Ford. And he, they thought the country and the moderate Republicans would back it. And so that's what they have to do. But this time, you know, Kamala Harris hasn't committed a crime and she's a black woman and they can't get rid of her. And so they're stuck with Joe Biden in the way that, um, that the, the Republicans thought they were stuck with Richard Nixon or they, the country thought they were as long as Agnew was there. I don't know how they're going to do it, but I do think that 
it's kind of tragic because I get kind of angry when I know that we all know that they knew about the cognitive state of Joe Biden when they nominated him. They did it cynically as sort of some kind of ghost presidency or virtual presidency that would be in a Faustian bargain, they said, after South Carolina. Everybody will bow out. Good old Joe from Scranton will play the moderate role. And then we, as in exchange for getting him elected and giving him the ceremonial chance to be president, we have the agenda, the squad, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, but especially the Obamas. And it's their agenda. And they feel that they can get it through much more effectively than Obama did because Joe Biden had that reputation of not necessarily being a revolutionary. And, well, but and he, he part of this is though he promised he he promised to be a one-term president. He said, "I'm going to be a he transitional did. president." And he's, I think that they they thought the deal that you're talking about was all right. Fine, we'll have four years to regroup, refortify, and we'll come back out and then fight it amongst ourselves again. And he was when he announced he was running again, they went, "Whoa, that wasn't the deal." No, that wasn't the deal. But uh, I, I think they thought he was going to step down and then they would have an open primary and Kamala Harris, of course, would lose. And they could say, well, we wanted her to be president, but the voters thought otherwise. And therefore, it would be an open, honest primary and they could get someone, whether it was Michelle or uh, Gretchen Whitmer or Gavin Newsom, it would be a fair. And that didn't happen. And now they're they're stuck with it. And it's... You know, it's very funny to hear Corinne Jean-Pierre say all this, uh, just ignore any legitimate question about his cognitive status. When when you look back at Donald Trump, they brought in a Yale psychiatrist who tele-diagnosed him as crazy and said he needed a straitjacket intervention. And then they had the acting FBI director and the deputy attorney general talking about wearing a wire to entrap the president in some conversation that would be proof of 25th Amendment exposure. They did, all, and they finally forced Trump, as you remember, take, to take the Montreal cognitive assessment, right. which he aced. And the idea that that Joe Biden would be forced to do that up through public pressure is absurd. They would never allow that to happen. It is kind of crazy. I mean, you you really when you look at the disparity and how they treated him on certain on issues, did. especially health. Um, I, I want to get your take on two more issues before we go. We talked again about the country, right? And there's two existential issues that I think are really concerning to me. And the first is the deficit. And there was a report from the Congressional Budget Office that came out just the other day. It said the U.S. deficit is expected to climb over the next 10 years uh, with higher interest payments set to account for historic share of government spending, the CBO said. The new projections from the nonpartisan agency showed deficits jumping from $1.6 trillion to $2.6 trillion in 2032, a slightly less bleak prediction for the nation's fiscal health than previously estimated. I, at some point, don't we just topple on ourselves economically? Yeah, I mean, it's larger than the defense budget now. And when we were only able to run up this budget, this deficit, this debt, because we had these historically artificially low interest rates. So the more we borrow, the less we had to pay because the interest rate was almost de facto zero. And now that that's over with and the bill's coming due. And when you listen to what Democrats say about it, there's only historically when you see this in Rome or Byzantium or in early Europe, there's only three ways to deal with a bankrupt government. One, you have to inflate the currency and pay back as Germany tried to uh, after World War I with inflated, cheap, worthless dollars. That means you pay back bondholders money that they that's worthless. 
or two, you expropriate private capital. And people have talked about that. Well, maybe we'll take the 401s and give you years of credit for your Social Security. And you, you can do that. Or the worst and the most devastating, we see it in Latin America and Africa, you can renounce the debt and just tell bond owners, you have more money than you need, so we're not going to pay you back of those T-bills that you took out. But it has to be one of those three options if we don't get our house in order. And the longer we wait, the worse it gets. It's kind of like that Aesop's fable about belling the cat. Everybody knows you have to bell the cat. No one wants to put the bell on the cat because to do so is suicidal if you're a mouse. And no president wants to say, I'm going to come in and shake up the economy and start paying the debt down and balance the budget because he would be called all sorts of names. And this is really scary because historically when the medicine is is viewed as worse than the disease, yeah. then, you, you, then you're inert, you're stuck. You can't do anything. Well, the other, I mean, to, to go along that lines, the other issue, right, is the FBI director was up on Capitol Hill during the week and he says, Chinese hackers are determined to wreak havoc on US critical infrastructure. And this, to me, the same thing. We are so dependent and tied to China. We know what to do. We, our leaders talk about it all the time and then do nothing. We ended up going through COVID, which they sent to us, and then buying all of our drugs and PPE from the place that gave us the disease. Yeah, I think, I think people are starting to realize now that uh, the essentials of a society, even in a postmodern era, are what counts. Manufacturing, assembly, construction, agriculture, fuel, all of that stuff. And we got this idea that we're going to send half the people and put them in debt and go to college. They're going to get psych degrees, sociology, environmental, and we're going to neglect the tradesman, the plumber, the assembler, the construction engineer. That's who's really important. And we really got to get back to these, these basic symptoms of what makes a healthy society, physical sobriety, uh, a good trade uh, balance, a strong currency, but most importantly, self-sufficiency yeah. as much as you can. And when you look at, we can't even build enough ships to deter the Chinese. We don't have the wherewithal. And yet no, we there's have no this, manufacturing base. Yeah, we, yeah. We've we lost have too much. Our brightest people are going into high finance investment, Wall Street, when they should be going in, I think, to you know, corporate uh, construction, assembly, new products, et cetera. That's people we should honor. We need more Henry Ford's. And people like that, Thomas Edison, and less uh, of the of these gurus that don't make anything. Yeah, less and more. Maybe AI can solve that. The yeah. last thing I want to ask you is something that uh, someone sent me a comment on, and they were particularly excited that you were coming on the show. Yeah. And they were saying, "Hey, I live out in California. I feel left out. I don't feel like there's any hope." What is the hope for California? You talk about being there for generations, having a farm, having the rest of your family out there. What, what, if you're somebody who's hearing you today as a fifth generation Californian, what hope do you want to give them that things can get turned around in California? Well, you know, I believe people are people. I don't really look at their superficial appearance. And so we have 45% of our population claims their identifies as on the census as Hispanic, mostly Mexican American. And we have about 18% Asian. And I live in a community that was once 50% white, 50% Mexican. That's 90% Mexican-American. So the only people I see every day when I'm not in the Bay Area are so-called Latinos. And I talk to them almost hourly. I, you know, people I see, my best friends are all Latino. And I can tell you there's been a sea change because a lot of them say, I cannot pay $5 
uh, a gallon for my diesel pickup. I cannot pay the insurance they want on my house. The insurers are leaving the state. I don't have the insurance. Or they'll say, Victor, have you looked at your car registration? Have you looked at your car insurance? Have you looked at the schools? Have you looked at the electricity bill? Have you looked at the natural gas bill? Have you tried to drive down the 99 lately? Have you, hey, Victor, I just got asked today, have you been up to San Francisco lately? I said, yes, I have. He said, did you get, did you track in crap on your feet? I said, yes, I did. What <laughs> happened? And they want to know. And I think they're so ingrained as a community to be loyal to the Democratic Party that it's hard. And I'm speaking to somebody who grew up in a Democratic family, but I think there's a, it, there's a revolutionary beginning where a lot of the Hispanic community and is intermarrying, they're acculturating, they're integrating, and they're becoming more conservative. I never believed it before when Carl Rove and people would say that family values will make Hispanics turn red. That was 30 years ago, but I'm starting to now. And I think, I think it's happening and it's a wonderful development. It is a wonderful development. Victor, uh, I love our conversations. Uh, you really add such insight and perspective. Uh, I know hopefully people have read The Case for Trump and Dying Citizen, both amazing books. The new book, uh, The End of Everything, How Wars Descend into Annihilation comes out in May. But as a fellow author, I will tell you to, to folks, go out there, go to Amazon right now, pre-order the book. That's a huge sign of support for authors. So Look, Victor never disappoints. The books are insightful and amazing, just like the conversation. So if you're listening, please go out there and subscribe uh, to go to Amazon, get that book now. You'll have it delivered when it comes out and then you won't have to remember in May. So thank you. Congrats on, the, on this latest book though. And I appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Sean. Happy to be here. You bet. All right, folks, thanks for being with us. I hope you have a great weekend. Make sure you continue to share and subscribe. As you go around this weekend, spread the good word. Tell people about the show. Make sure that they subscribe. Go to Apple, YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, and then double down, go everywhere else. You can join the show at seanspicershow.com slash VIP and be part of our weekly groups. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you back here on Monday. See ya.